Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You are listening to Rainbow Soul. This is Dr. Jennifer Daniel, and you are listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Channel, Rainbow Soul. Okay, it's Tuesday, December 8th, and it's 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And tonight's topic is indemnity. Yes, indemnity, the root of all evil. You know, I, I thought about this because I wondered to myself, why would 880,000 people willingly submit to being killed each year by the medical industrial complex? Then you have to ask the other question, why would members, human beings, people employed in the medical industrial complex willingly kill 880,000 fellow countrymen every year. And so as I got to talking about it, I said, well, it must be indemnity. Indemnity. So what is indemnity? Indemnity is to indemnify. And to indemnify means that you secure, which is protect someone against legal responsibility for their actions. Actually, the word here is responsibility. We're going to talk about many different types of responsibilities. So you can indemnify a person against legal responsibility for their actions, which means you can protect someone from, say, going to jail or paying a fine or losing their property as a result of their actions. So they commit an action for which they would ordinarily have to go to jail and somebody else protects them from that consequence. And they know that if they commit this act, they will be protected from the legal consequences, that they will not have to suffer the legal consequences. And so secure means like they're really sure about this. And so this is what it means to indemnify. Now, another type of 
indemnifying. You can indemnify or secure someone against the financial consequences or responsibility for their actions. For example, if you have a house, you take out something called fire insurance and the house catches on fire. Usually it's because of something the occupants did. Maybe something in the stove was left unattended. Maybe the kids were playing with fire. Maybe a smoker dropped a cigarette. But the fire occurred through the actions of a human being. And so because the person's paid a certain amount of money for its insurance, then they are indemnified. That means they are not responsible financially for their actions. Okay? So legal responsibility means you don't go to jail or pay a fine, uh, which are basic legal consequences. Financial indemnity, which means you don't have to bear financial consequences. And then there's another kind of indemnity, which we don't really think about much, but it's presumed. So it's presumed, for example, that when a person sees a doctor, that that person is protected from being harmed by that doctor. How are they protected? Well, they're protected because they're going to pick a doctor who's certified. That's one way of getting protected. That means they don't get harmed in the first place, let's say. Second is if a doctor harms them, that means they suffer bodily harm as a result of the doctor's actions, then they will not suffer from that harm because of malpractice. And so that's the full extent of the reasoning. But if we dig a little deeper, and it's always nice to dig a little deeper, we can see that if a person has surgery, let's say it's not necessary surgery, but they don't know that, and they lose, say, their arm as a result of that, there really is no amount of money that can dispel the suffering the pain of recovery, and the fact of not having an arm or a hand. And so it's actually not possible to replace with dollars and cents the suffering, the torture, the mutilation, and in many cases even the death that a person suffers as a result of medical intervention. So the patient has then the illusion of indemnity. The patient has the illusion that he actually is being protected from the consequences of his actions, his actions being saying yes to surgery or taking a pill. So the person has the illusion that they are indemnified. And because of that illusion of indemnity, because of that illusion of being totally protected against the responsibility slash consequences of being involved in a dangerous medical industrial system, people willingly proceed. So people willingly proceed because they think they are protected. This protection actually is uh, it's an illusion. It doesn't really exist because if you submit to medical intervention and you're among the 880,000 people in the United States each year who dies as a result of that, 
you're really not any adequate financial compensation, right? Because no matter how much money is spent, you can never be brought back to life. That's number one. Number two is this indemnity, this financial reward, call it a jackpot, if you will, is only dispensed if the doctor did not follow the standard of care. But in as much as 90%, I guess I say 88% of the cases of people who die at the hands of the medical industrial complex, the doctor did indeed follow the standard of care. So for more or less 88% of these cases where a person dies at the hands of the medical industrial complex, there will be no check issued to the survivors. And there, for 100% of them, will be no chance of being brought back to life. So because people feel that they are indemnified, they perceive when actually they are in no way protected at all. So I'll give you an example. Uh, there's this guy who's a really popular guy, and he owned a yacht sales business. And so he had a brokerage firm that bought and sold yachts and helped people uh, buy yachts. So he made a lot of money. Very wealthy man. And so he went to his doctor, and the doctor says, cholesterol high. So it yeah, sounds good. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he took a cholesterol medicine. And then he went back to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, you know, uh, I think you need to put me on this medicine medicine, start on this new pill. And three weeks later, he says to his wife, yeah, I just don't feel well. I just don't feel well. And so she decided, being a good wife, that she'd go get him a glass of water, which she did. She went and got him a glass of water, and she was going to get a glass of water. She heard this crash, and she came back into the room to find her husband was dead. Now, in this case, uh, no malpractice suit was filed, the medicines were not even suspected, and of course, being a dutiful wife, doing as her husband directed her, she sold the yacht brokerage firm, um, and someone else uh, took over. But this is how the 880,000 Americans die each year at the hands of medicine, and often the medication, the medical intervention, is not even suspected. So. We come out the patient is not indemnified. But what about the perpetrators? What about, well, I won't say perpetrators, I'll say initiators, because obviously the patient did take the pill. So what about the person writing the prescription? What about the person taking the vital signs? What about the clerk who checked them out at the front desk? What about all these people involved? How, how does that work? Are they indemnified? Uh, are they granted immunity from prosecution in advance? And not only immunity from prosecution, but even immunity from the financial consequences of killing their best customers. And so I'd like to suggest today that, yes, they are indemnified. Yes, they do have immunity. And yes, you are paying for it. And, of course, you get what you pay for. So we need to talk today about how to stop paying for death. 
how to stop paying to be killed. So, as always, we like to go back to the beginning. That would be medical school. So medical school, uh, the first thing we were told before we even saw a first patient, we were told that we as doctors were, as a part of being a doctor, doing things that have done in another context, that have done by somebody without special government permission, would be considered criminal. But because of our special status as doctors, we are indemnified. We are held harmless. We cannot, will not be prosecuted. We have special permission to do these things which are unlawful if done by a citizen or individual who is not licensed. And so I felt a little uncomfortable with that. I'm like, well, geez, you know, I didn't go to medical school to learn how to commit crimes. And so they assured us that all of these things that we did were necessary. So we had to take people's clothes off. We had to probe into every orifice they had so we could get valuable information to help and get better. I said, well, that sounds pretty good. Then they went on and said, well, now, we will be prescribing medications, and these medications are very dangerous, but they've been evaluated through research. In other words, for example, this is a real example given to us in medical school. There are drugs out there that will probably kill maybe eight people in the space of a year, but they save the lives of 10 people. And so if we do the math here, in that savings is two lives. So that would be a good drug. And of course, those unlucky eight people, uh, you'd wish they didn't die. But on the whole, it's a good thing because we do more good, the 10 people not rising, than harm. Now, what we doctors are not told is who does that math? How is that math calculated? Who calculates how many deaths there are? Who calculates how many lives are saved? Well, of course. The drug company does. Yes. The makers of the drug. They make the calculations. Hmm. I still felt uncomfortable. I said, wait a minute. You mean to tell me I'm going to be killing people and because I'm a doctor, I'm granted immunity from the consequences of killing people. I had to scratch my head on that. Now, my other classmates were a little uncomfortable, but they kind of went for it. They understood the concept. In my case, because of my unusual background, I didn't understand it at all. Because my father told me, he said, Jennifer, if you're going to commit crimes, don't do it as a group. Because if you commit crimes, you have other co-conspirators with you in it, you're going to be the fall guy. Everyone's going to be okay, and then when the police show up, boom, it'll be all your fault, and you'll go to jail for life. I said, oh, my God. And so when they told me in medical school that I was going to be able to commit criminal acts and be indemnified and held harmless, I remember what my father said, and I said, oh, no. I know what this is. Oh, you're setting me up to be a fall guy. I'm not going for this. Of course, 
my other classmates uh, were not so suspicious. And it turns out, actually, they were correct, that uh, pretty much uh, each and every doctor is held harmless, is indemnified via the malpractice system. So when patients die, they all get processed through this filter of, did the doctor follow the standard of care, no matter how lethal, but did he follow the standard of care? And if he did, not only is there no criminal penalty, but there's not even a financial penalty and zero compensation to the patient. If he did not follow the standard of care, then he does not have the protection of malpractice in the terms of, uh, actually, he does still have the protection of malpractice because the malpractice company pays out a financial penalty on his behalf and he has complete exoneration still from any criminal responsibility for his acts. So let's make this real clear. So we have here an individual with special standing designated by the government that in the event that they commit harm of, of course, a criminal nature, because we were told in medical school, that don't worry, you're going to be committing crimes here, but you're a doctor, so it's not a crime. So let's take the extreme case, as in the case of these 880,000 people every year who die in the medical industrial complex, First, there's zero, zero legal responsibility on the part of those involved. Why? Because they are indemnified in advance. They have been exonerated because they have permission to commit these crimes. In other words, if someone is harmed, if someone is mutilated, if someone is killed, then it is under no circumstances a criminal act. And this is the legal responsibility issue. So a doctor at no point has legal responsibility. Now, <laughs> you can see how this one goes, right? If you tell somebody you have zero responsibility, you have no legal responsibility, in the event of patient death, you have already been exonerated. Okay, so... No legal responsibility on the part of the doctor. Now, the doctor has paid something called a malpractice insurance. What does that mean? That means that this killing, which would be a criminal matter if he were not a doctor, is now a civil matter. And the question is, did he follow the standard of care, no matter how lethal? So if he followed the standard of care, the person died as a result of the standard of care, there is no responsibility, financial or otherwise, on the part of the doctor or on the part of the malpractice company. Why? Because it's understood the doctor will kill. And the killings the doctor will commit are presumed to be far less than the lives that the doctor will save. That's the presumption. Of course, calculation done by the medical industrial complex itself. And so at no point is a doctor in any way responsible. Now you can imagine then, so if a doctor is asked to follow the standard of care and as a result, a person dies, is he going to do it again? 
Well, chances are actually pretty good, right? Pretty good. Because he's what? He's been indemnified. Yes, he's been indemnified. So chances of doing this again are pretty darn good. And this is why there's such a high body count of 880,000 Americans per year. Now, what other penalty could a doctor possibly suffer? Or possibly suffer in terms of killing a patient? Well, the answer is a dead body can't pay bills, now can it? Right? So if you have a patient, your doctor, the patient's obedient, takes every drug you tell him to take, he gets sicker, he gets sicker, he gets sicker. You're going to say, ooh, let me ease up, cut back these drugs a little longer. You could do that, or you could continue with the standard of care. And so he's on the drugs, he gets sicker, then he needs a few thousand dollars in tests, then he goes into the hospital, and tens of thousands of dollars there, so the doctor then had a chance, either I could collect five times as much money, five to ten times as much money this year by following the standard of care, and maybe the patient will die, or I could cut back on things a bit, maybe it'll last a little longer, but that's future income, not a sure thing. Why not take the present income? So how does that look like? Well, you have a patient. What are they doing? They're paying monthly insurance premiums. Yes, monthly insurance premiums. And what do these premiums do? They indemnify the doctor. They indemnify the doctor. So in the event that the doctor kills the patient, the doctor still gets paid. So in our definition of indemnity, by paying health insurance premiums, the patient secures someone in this case, the doctor, against financial responsibility for the doctor's actions. And so one thing that was always a problem with doctors is you take care of the patient, you do everything, according to the standard of care, or however you do it, the patient dies, and oh, you don't get paid after all that effort. And so now, with insurance, the patients have actively indemnified the doctor against the consequences of the doctor's actions. And so by the patient's own efforts, by the patient's own diligence, their killers are being paid handsomely. Now, when did I really kind of personally come up against this? Well, after I left medical school, I guess it was uh, in the course of uh, medical school entering residency. You get to that point in life where you're asked to sign contracts. And so when I'm asked to sign contracts, this was back then, young, excellent eyesight. I could read all the small print. So I got to the small print that says, I agree to indemnify and hold harmless fill-in-the-blank named large corporation. That's what the sign is. I said, how am I going to indemnify and hold anybody harmless? Not possible. Five feet, ten inches tall, 127 pounds, a little wisp of a thing, no finances to my name. And I would say, I can't sign this. I can't indemnify anything, not even me. And so I would, of course, 
protest. I can't find this because I can't identify anybody and hold anybody harmless because I have no resources to do that with. And do you know they let me cross that clause out of those contracts? Cross it out to find it. And then um, I constantly get presented with these contracts for me to indemnify and hold harmless, indemnify and hold harmless, indemnify and hold harmless. I said, no, 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 no. I don't indemnify anybody because I don't have the money. I can't do it. Not possible. And so I would say to the person asking me to sign the contract, you've got to be responsible for what you do, and I'll be responsible for what I do. That's the best I can do because I don't have any resources. Little did I know. Uh, So that was my first inkling of the concept of indemnify and hold harmless. And so this makes no sense. If you have two adults entering into an agreement, you ask one to indemnify the other and hold them harmless, then that's not an equal agreement. So you have one person there as an adult who's responsible for only for himself and the acts of the other person. Of course, the other person, unfortunately, is usually a large corporation. So as a doctor starting out, going to residency, starting my own practice, no, 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 no. I am not going to indemnify anybody and hold anybody harmless. If I do something wrong, then as an adult, I accept responsibility, I'll pay for it or make it right. And I'd expect, of course, the other parts of the contract to do the same. And so this is very interesting. And people are actually fascinated. Dr. Daniels, I can't believe you read the whole contract. I said, yeah, yeah, I read read the whole contract. And so this is the issue, I think, that patients don't fully understand because it's so obscured and um, covered and cloaked and so many layers of emotional propaganda. But to indemnify and hold harmless it is what patients have been asked to do uh, for doctors. And so what I decided then was that would be the right thing to do. And so early on uh, in my career, I would say as soon as I was asked to buy my own health insurance, I realized it made no sense for me to buy health insurance. Why? Because the health insurance did not indemnify me. I still had to pay deductibles. I had to pay co-pays. There are some uncovered charges that the health insurance did not indemnify me, did not protect me from the financial consequences of my decision to seek or not seek health care. That's number one. But number two, even more importantly, I felt that my decision to consume health care was a personal, private decision, and other people shouldn't pay for that personal, private decision. And what happens when you sign up for health insurance for We'll say emotional reasons, or maybe the belief that it provides protection to you. You have to ask yourself what it's protecting you from. 
And many people say, ah, it's protecting me from uh, health bills. Help protect me from high health bills. But if you get down to the essence of it, it's protecting you from the financial consequences of your decisions, of your actions. And this is indemnity. Secure someone against responsibility for their actions. That is what the health insurance does or pretends to do. So the patient then needs to realize that these are your actions. It's your decision to submit to the medical industrial complex. It's your decision to put a pill in your mouth. It's your decision to accept the surgery, which may or may not be necessary. And, and for all the women out there who get surgery for DCIS, dental carcinoma in sight to the breast, that's stage zero cancer. With stage zero cancer, it's not cancer at all, even though they give it the name carcinoma to intimidate women into getting mastectomies. And so if people had to pay, or should they do have to pay, but if they did not have the emotional illusion or the intellectual illusion that they were being indemnified, then they would not submit to this intervention, mutilation, and many more people would be alive. This 880,000 figures, 880,000 people dying every year at the hands of the medical industrial complex, a much smaller number. So the person being indemnified when you accept insurance is not you. You are indemnifying the hospital and if we look at um, Dr. Levinson's Medicare report on harm done to Medicare patients, you can see that hospitals deliberately do not change policies that lead to the death of patients. Why? Because a patient who dies as a result of this hospital care generally has a hospital bill that's five times the size of a patient who receives proper care and is discharged alive. And that's a lot of profit to pass up for an institution that has a profit margin of less than 5% or 5% or less. So then the existence of health insurance, whether it's Medicare insurance or whether it's private insurance, indemnifies the hospital so that they can collect money for the hospital visit long after the patient is dead. Now, that is a lot of indemnity. When you can be responsible for the killing and still collect money from that cold, dead body. So the person being identified, or the individual being indemnified is the hospital, is the drug companies indirectly because the drugs dispensed during hospitalization, which are purchased from them by the hospital. And many people, when they buy health insurance, think they're indemnifying themselves. And because of that, when they check into hospitals or the doctor's office, there's this uh, big ritual of handing the insurance card over and copying it both sides and um, there's this form saying, yeah, I consent to therapy, and the bottom is 
I accept responsibility for any and all charges not paid by my insurance company. What does that do? That totally negates the indemnity protection that your insurance provides. So if your insurance is really going to protect you from financial ruin, there would be no reason for that clause there on the contract. So what the contract does is indemnifies the hospital and gives them, the hospital, the opportunity to seduce you or deceive you into signing a blank check, a personal commitment of all of your resources towards this hospital bill to be paid, of course, even before your heirs are paid. So the illusion of indemnity is what patients have. And so between having health insurance and signing the blank check when they go to the doctor's office and signing the blank check when they go to the hospital, the patient in advance indemnifies and holds harmless both the hospital, the doctors, and any other companies that profit indirectly by devices or drugs that are used in the process of killing the patient. And so health insurance then is payment that's provided to the medical industrial complex in the case of your death. So literally, at no point does somebody say, whoa, stop it, stop it, hold it, hold it, let's not go any further. This person might die, and if he dies, nobody gets paid. So I would encourage anyone, you know, set things up so that if you die, nobody gets paid. It's important. And so it provides an incentive for you to be harmed because Again and again and again. People have looked at this. It's been studied. Hospitals, doctors get paid much more when things go wrong than when things go right. And so if you have a situation where someone not only has health insurance but has signed a blank check, then there's no restraint, no financial incentive whatever to stop before the grave, stop before uh, the person dies. For example, in my medical practice, I had a cash practice. So if the person died, not only did I not get paid, but it was very difficult to replace that patient. Very, very difficult. But if I had accepted insurance, it would be a simple matter. Why? Because I get paid more if the patient died. So the more drugs I gave, the more visits I created, the more money I would get paid. And then when the patient died, I would still get paid after the patient died. Not only that, the same insurance company that paid me after the death of the patient would literally send me three more patients to replace the one that died. When it died, it would not even be missed. So when you indemnify your killers in advance with the sophisticated financial uh, construct, it creates extreme danger. So let's take an example. Diabetes is my favorite. Um, There's something called a hemoglobin A1C. 
And if you talk to your doctor, and if you're diabetic out there, your doctor has probably told you he thinks a good goal for your hemoglobin A1C is 7, 7.5, 6.5, as close to normal as possible. But recent research has shown that a hemoglobin A1C of 8 or less that's achieved with medications increases the person's chance of dying by 30%. In other words, if what you're trying to do is make a diabetic healthier, help them live longer, then there would be no reason to treat a hemoglobin A1C of 8 or less. So why would anyone have such a goal? Answer, well, in order to achieve a hemoglobin A1C of 8 or less, which is the deadly level, proven to increase mortality by 30% uh, by the latest studies, it takes a lot more doctor visits, a lot more finger sticks and um, glucose testing strips, a lot more pills, and a lot more insulin, as well as testing. And so the amount of financial investment is much, much higher. The amount of profit is much, much higher when a diabetic is managed in the lethal range than when they're managed in a healthy range. By healthy, I mean a range that will create the longest lifetime possible and the greatest quality of life. Another example is cholesterol management. Scientifically proven by the medical industrial complex that cholesterol levels are unrelated to health or disease. Now, I'll repeat that. Cholesterol levels are not related to health or disease. That's right. Yet, the standard of care is to prescribe cholesterol-lowering medications. Why would anyone do that when the cholesterol-lowering medications have now been shown to cause Alzheimer's, uh, mental decline as the euphemism used, now shown to cause diabetes, which of course then leads to diabetes treatment, at least you have a 30% increase in death rate from the diabetes treatment, and so on. So the whole plethora uh, of medical conditions created by the cholesterol drugs. Why do that? Answer, because while the person's alive, the amount of revenue and profit is much higher. So if you put a person on cholesterol drugs, what have you got? You've got someone showing up for four office visits who before were short for zero. You've got a person taking a pill every day, an additional one, was before they were taking none. So it's a major revenue generator. So nothing of the complications of the cholesterol pill and all the great things that you can then prescribe. But why do you do this if it could lead to, well, death? Answer, because the doctor has been indemnified. The doctor has been indemnified. So by following the standard of care, even though this incredible harm is done, even though death result, the doctor has been indemnified. No financial loss, 
still gets paid for providing the care. No loss of freedom, doesn't go to jail. Not even a loss of license. So the doctor is totally secured and indemnified in this transaction. One, patients are programmed just the only highly trained, certified doctors who follow the standard of care. So check that box. He's indemnified there because the patient is willing to go for it. Then he's indemnified, the patient's got insurance, so he'll get paid even when the patient dies. It's malpractice, he's indemnified there against legal consequences because it's not treated as a crime. It's treated as a civil matter, a civil matter. And so granting immunity in advance is the root of this 880,000 killings every year at the hand of medical industrial complex. So if you're harmed by your doctor, he gets paid. If the doctor does a surgery, he botches it, he has to do a second surgery, because the initial work was well, subpar, he gets paid. And if he doesn't get paid, guess what? His golf buddy does. So this is amazing. He gets to pay to fix his own mistake. What incentive does anyone have to get it right? Certainly not the first time. And what happens if you're not happy? You tell all your friends he's a bad doctor? As I said before, the insurance company, yep, the one you're paying your premiums to, Send him five new patients for everyone he kills. And so what you've done then is you've secured the doctor from the financial consequences of his acts. You have indemnified the doctor. You have indemnified the medical industrial complex. Now, one thing that we were told in medical school of uh, neophyte doctors is that the insurance companies were on the patient's side. It was the insurance companies that patients could count on. Thank God. The insurance companies were watching. And if the insurance company can see a pattern of something going wrong, why? They'll make a policy change and they'll they'll fix it. Okay. And so of course, it's obviously a lot. The insurance does not protect you from damage to your health or death due to medical care at all. And let me give you an example. We have things called a public exam in the United States. You know, it takes 33,000 public exams to prevent one case of cervical cancer. One public exam takes, let's say, half work day for the woman, so she's got to take off. She's got to go from work to the doctor's office, maybe an hour drive, wait for an hour, maybe two or three, get the public exam, get dressed, go back to work. So at least a half day. So if you calculate a half day for each pelvic exam, each of these 33,000 pelvic exams, and you calculate a lifetime as the fertile period for a lady from age 18 to 65, then it literally takes 1.5 lifetimes of pelvic exam to prevent one death from cervical cancer. Well, 
math there is obviously wrong, right? So it takes 1.5 lifetimes to prevent one death from cervical cancer. Then even if we don't count side effects of false positives, the uh, unnecessary mutilation and biopsies due to false positives and follow-up testing, having public exams costs 1.5 lives to society to avoid even one death from cervical cancer. Obviously, not an effective maneuver. And this often is the rationale that we get from the medical industrial complex about damaging, harmful things. Well, it does more good than harm. Well, it's better for society, even though this woman might not benefit. Her doing this ritualistic pelvic exam is going to benefit all the others that might be saved. So how can this one lady getting a pelvic exam, which she has no chance of benefiting from, help other women? But that's the rationale. And this lie is so big and so obvious that the only way to perpetuate it is to instill in the patient, the potential patient, the false impression that he is being indemnified from the consequences of the lie. What's the indemnity? The indemnity is that the health exam is paid for, that's the money part, the false positives that are followed up on, um, if the person dies through the complication of any of those procedures, then malpractice would pay for that. Again, these are illusions, right? Because if a person is harmed by the standard of care, there is no compensation, not at any time and not at any level. So we have about 12 minutes left, and it's time for questions. Let's go check out the chat room. I've not been able to get over there. (laughs) Okay, lots of action here in the chat room. All right, Dr. Danov, thank you very much for your medical school stories. You know, it really happened. I said it helps in putting together the modern medicine ineffectiveness and putting it in perspective. All right. So any doctors that do go to jail have to have been railroaded? Not exactly, but I mean, more or less. But there are some doctors who do go beyond the pale. For example, um, there was a doctor in New York State, I understand, who uh, performed an abortion at a time when it was not legal. The patient died, and he uh, chopped the body up and uh, tried to dispose of it. Now, he was sent to jail. Why? Because at that time, performing an abortion was not considered a medical act. So if a doctor is engaged in any action that's considered medical, let's say doing um, unnecessary gallbladder surgery, doing an unnecessary hysterectomy, if it is a medical act that he was trained to do that's legally permissible for doctors to do, then 
if the patient dies as a result of that act, the doctor cannot be prosecuted in a criminal way for that. That's important to uh, understand. Okay, would this type of profession attract a great number of psychopaths, do you think? The answer is absolutely, absolutely. Um, and even going to medical school, um, the the pedophiles gravitate towards pediatrics. The um, doctors who were uh, woman haters um, gravitate towards obstetrics and gynecology. So there is no um, no limitation or restriction on, on this type of thing. And so it was shocking, you know, to talk to my medical stu- medical students, my fellow students, and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? How are you feeling? And um, what are you going to major in? And so it, it was very... Uh, actually distressing um, to realize that these individuals were going into areas that would likely result to even more um, harm to patients. They were going into specialties where they wanted to do harm, they were enthusiastically looking forward to harm. And so one person says, it only takes one public exam to feel violated. Yes. And um, so those of you ladies out there who feel violated when you get public exams, it's because you are being violated. <laughs> okay. All right. Radio Academics, it is very beneficial, and thank you for exposing these delusions. All right. Okay. Upcoming OT. What's that question? I don't know. All right. Let's see. Okay. Japanese researchers present evidence that statins may cause coronary artery calcification and can function as mitochondrial toxins that impair muscle function in the heart and blood vessels through depletion of coenzyme Q10 and heme A, and thereby ATP generation. Okay, so uh, it's pretty straightforward that um, statins do cause global muscle damage, and the heart is a muscle. And so what we have is research that has been, um, in many cases, manufactured or biased. And even with extreme bias, they can only show benefit after 1,250 years of use. Now, even under the best of circumstances, a person would probably live no more than 120 years. So why take a drug that's going to take 1,250 years to be of benefit. So uh, that is the that is the issue. And so it's very straightforward. It's very clear. But people submit to this. Why? 
because they feel they have been indemnified. People feel that paying health insurance indemnifies them. They don't realize it really indemnifies uh, their murderer. Okay, Dr. what do you think about the metabolic type approach to diet? Okay, I'm not a big fan of the metabolic approach type to diet. Why? Because you can actually change your metabolic type by your diet. And so the metabolic type approach to diet is like the medical approach, which is, oh, you're having a limp? Then just get a cane. Oh, you're having a limp? Oh, then just don't walk as much. So what you're saying to the person is, you have this metabolic type and instead of fixing it or correcting it, we just need to uh, endure it. We just need to uh, indulge it. And so we just need to limit your activities to accommodate the limitations of your so-called uh, metabolic type. So that's what I've what I have found. Even Ayurvedics who talk about um, the doshas, you know, kapha, uh, pitta, and so on. They've now said, well, everyone's got a little bit of kapha, everyone's got a little bit of pitta, and so you know, each one of us has a bit of that. And now they've come to another. Uh, piece of information, which is, well, each stage of life is different. So the pitta stage is the first third of life where you have all this energy and activity and your splendor. And then you you transition to another dosha and finally to kappa where you're overweight, filled with water, and sluggish. And so a lot of times these body types or metabolic types are I say when they're used to the patient's benefit, then they are a guidance for what therapies to use. But to just say you're of a particular body type and you'll always be of that body type is not really um, beneficial. Yeah. Okay. So has medical science gotten so sophisticated that they know exactly how to kill people over a long period of time? Absolutely. And that's exactly what's going on. And so what you have then is people are are taking drugs that are killing them over a period of 10 to 20 years. And we know this because we look at populations in the United States that don't take drugs, that don't have access to medical care, they tend to live more or less 10 years years longer than the average American. And so that would suggest that quite a few of the deaths, at least half of the deaths in the United States, in other words, 1.25 million, because 2.5 million is the number of deaths at latest count, that would be 2014. So the estimate of those killed by medicine would actually be higher, closer to 1.2 million, as opposed to uh, 880,000. So I only count the deaths that the medical industrial complex confesses to or clarifies through their own writings. But if you look at it and take a very close look, the medical industrial complex may be responsible 
for lowering the life expectancy in the United States from uh, 86 for men to 76. And so it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's not trivial. In those 10 years, we're not talking about 10 years on your back in a nursing home. We're talking about 10 years of high-level functional walking, talking, and participating in family activities. So that is it for tonight. We are at the end of our show, and we'll see you again next week. And next week is retractions. Yes, we're going to go over the retractions the medical industrial complex has printed, saying, oops, made a mistake. So we'll see you again. Until then, think happens.